Welcome to episode number 25 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a worldwide global community around workplace safety and industries handling combustible dust. Today's episode, we have an interview with Dan Laird, Director of Engineering at Hallam ICS, and we're talking about the history of arc flash safety. In particular, we're looking at how some of the components over the last number of decades in arc flash safety could be applied to combustible dust safety as well. So with our guest with Dan, he has an electrical engineering degree, an electrical engineering background. He's been in power systems and electrical systems for 25 years, and he's been in arc flash safety since 2006. Um, in his current role with Hallam ICS, he also works quite a bit in this area. He's been with them for the last five years. And through some early conversations that we had before the podcast, Dan mentioned that combustible dust safety in his mind is really in the educational phase. And they saw that arc flash safety was in a similar phase about a decade ago. He also shared that there's been some progress in, in arc flash safety over the last 10 years. And he wanted to share some of the lessons that have been learned through our process with our community to see how they could be applied to combustible dust. So in this interview, we get into a lot of topics like um, different types of gap analysis, including requirements for PPE, work procedures, engineering changes, or engineering implementations of, of safety systems. We also talk about inherent safety and how principles like minimization, substitution may be applied or have been applied in arc flash safety, how maybe they can be applied in combustible dust as well. Dan also gives an insight into how arc flash study is completed, some of the history, and how the different groups involved, um, like the EHS, health and safety managers, the plant management, and the engineering team, all need to really be on the same page to make these work. And this is true in combustible dust safety as well. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I hope you really enjoy this episode with Dan. I'm looking forward to, to getting your feedback and comments in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 25. Welcome to episode number 25 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. In today's episode, we're doing an interview with Dan Laird, Director of Engineering at Hallam ICS, based out of Rayleigh, North Carolina. Dan, thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your, your experience with the community. Oh, hey, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. I was introduced to Dan through Chris Justo, who's the Director of Industrial Projects at Hallam. And we had him on episode 22 of the podcast, talking about five difficulties and challenges he sees companies making in prevention and protection of combustible dust hazards. And through some conversations with him and conversations I've had with Dan over the phone, Dan's background is, is in arc flash safety, is in electrical and power system safety through Hallam and his, his previous work. And he mentioned that he saw that combustible dust safety was really at a similar, he calls it an education phase, as arc flash safety was about a decade ago. And he mentioned that arc flash safety seems to have really picked up and that people have... Um, really learned quite a bit and they've been able to, to do a lot of things that those industries. And the reason I want to have them on the podcast today was really to talk a bit about that whole journey, that history, and then how he thinks that we could maybe apply that to combustible dust. This really goes along with our lines of understanding combustible dust as a global challenge. Instead of talking about regionally, we're, we're looking at what can we learn from other industries and what they went through. So Dan, maybe a good place to start might be just for, for the audience's sake, what is arc flash and power systems? And you can kind of talk a bit about your background there as well. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I guess uh, probably one of the real pioneers was the U.S. Navy, and they were dealing with electrical accidents. And what they discovered was most accidents were not an electrician bumping into something energized. Uh, it was essentially a burn injury. And kind of what happens in an electrical accident, some uh, mechanism fails or somebody drops a screwdriver, 
And that solid copper goes to vapor very rapidly. So it creates a high, high temperature, high pressure blast. Temperature gets to be about 35,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, that, that blast that comes out from that uh, copper that vaporizes uh, expands about 63,000 times in volume. So very much like uh, uh, TNT. So w- what they had discovered probably about the 1990s was we've been doing this all wrong. We've got to figure out a way to eliminate these burn injuries uh, and, and not spend so much time on the inadvertent contact injury. So, so kind of in a nutshell, that's what uh, the arc flash was. Okay. And, and Dan shared a video with me actually prior to, to getting on the call about a, an arc flash accident. And it was really the workplace afterwards. We'll, we'll share that video in, in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 25. But it was really interviews with the, the folks after the accident, that sort of thing. But the, what he's talking about where in that case, an arc electricity flash from one lead of a, of a voltmeter to another, but the, the expanding of the gases in that cause a, a gigantic fireball and, and what is really a, a small explosion, actually not even too small of an explosion, a large explosion. Um, but often the worker will be right there and um, they can be, be quite severe. Uh, so I guess a, a good place to start, you mentioned back in 1990, there's really this focus on what are the, the burn injuries related to this and not really the contact, but these, these mini explosions or these fires. What are some different elements of, of arc flash and electrical safety as it kind of fits in today? Oh, sure. So one of the things that, that came out of this was, okay, how do we protect the workers? And there's about three different tracks you can go down. You can uh, go the power uh, PPE route. Uh, you could try to go the work procedures route. Uh, or you can try to uh, do some engineering changes. And we've kind of found that you need a mix of all three. If you just do protection, you can have somebody that looks like they're wearing a beekeeper suit. They really can't do their jobs very well. Uh, if you rely on work procedures, you're putting a lot of onus on uh, the employee themselves to, to, to know how to do things in, in different conditions. And that education is not always there. And then engineering, it's not always possible, either financially or just physically. So, so if you could work through that kind of gap analysis together, how can we use these three things together to make life safe, safer for our workers? Uh, that that's kind of what we've seen. That makes a lot of sense. And in that video, I mentioned the the focus afterwards was seemed to be quite a bit on on the the second one there, the work procedure. So, was the proper procedure followed? Were the kind of warning signs that are put up were those applicable? And they did focus on that quite a bit, and a little bit on the PPP side, less on the engineering changes. Uh, and that's that can be an effective way as well um, as we kind of seen in combustible dust safety. Say if you block switches from being able to put be put up when people are inside equipment or lock out tag out, those would be kind of your engineered changes where you can't do something. And then a work procedure would be okay. I, I shouldn't do this, um, but can sometimes be overlooked by the the workers. Do I do I have some of those right, Dan? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So so the engineering side I, I think is the most powerful if you can do it because now it's kind of like the in the lean manufacturing they use the phrase a go no go gauge. Uh, it's just physically impossible if you have something locked out, blocked, diverted. You've taken that out of uh, you know the personnel's hands. So it's a very powerful tool. But I'll, but but again, you, you really need to use all three in conjunction together. And yeah, I'd add one that that we see in fire and explosion safety sometimes, which is uh, inherent safety, actually removing the hazard. In electrical systems, this wouldn't necessarily be possible because the the electrical system is the is both the hazard and the thing that's there. 
where, you know, handling, say, a flammable uh, vapor or flammable liquid, maybe you don't need to do that. Maybe you could remove that hazard and have it be inherently safety, safer. But I didn't want to mention it as another kind of approach, but I can see how that difficult. That's actually a good point. So what we can do is uh, there's a lot of protective relaying or breaker settings upstream that part of the arc flash study does that we say, okay, we can either reduce those because they don't need to be set so slowly, or we can have uh, what they call a maintenance mode mechanism where you can have uh, protection settings only when a worker is doing maintenance on it and make it safer. So that, that's a little bit of, of trying to remove the hazard, you know, as you say. The electricity is always there, but how can we break that uh, electric circuit uh, faster than, than what we do under normal operation? Yeah, that's that's a good point. And the maintenance mode is a good idea. And that's sort of removing the hazard at the time that you, you need to remove it. You mentioned um, arc flash study there, and I just kind of started that in my notes. We didn't have a plan to go over this necessarily, but can you just briefly go through what an arc flash study might look like? Oh, sure. So you have a facility and uh, you want to make a computer model of the power system. So the place you start is with the drawings. And, and typically the drawings that you have are 50 to 75% accurate. So you really need to do a, a field survey, uh, get everything captured on paper, get all the trip settings, get all of your input parameters. And then you build the computer model, which isn't all that difficult. But then that's where you come back with your um, your results, which, okay, these are my danger spots. How do I mitigate those? And kind of as we discussed, is, is it proper mitigation through just uh, protections, uh, protective gear? Can we change some of the way we operate on this stuff? Uh, we say, no, you can never work on this energized. Or what kind of uh, engineering controls do we have to kind of uh, mitigate the hazards? So it's usually not that cut and dry. Normally, you have some gap analysis. At the end of this, you say, okay, here's the three things that I've got to do something right away. Here's some things I'd like to do, but it'll take some capital improvement. And, and here's some things I just physically can't do anything with. Uh, so we're just going to have to either change the way we've operated in the past or just you know completely work de-energized on this type of equipment. Yeah, it's funny. I can already see, and this will sort of be where we, we end up going in a few minutes, but I can already see the overlaps to some of the combustible dust concepts with, you know, making this this understanding the model of your system, picking out the fault points, coming up with a uh, sort of a risk ranking of what should be done first. So we hear that quite a bit. You can't do everything tomorrow. You have to choose, pick and choose what to do first. Exactly. And and then even the PPP and, and work processes and engineering changes. Those are all very similar concepts that we see in combustible dust safety and and some with similar names, some with different names. Maybe that's a good place to jump in. And I know your background is not necessarily combustible dust, but how do you see, actually, before we go into that, so how has how is ArcFlash kind of changed over the last 10 years? You mentioned to me personally before that you saw it was more of an, in, an education phase a number of years ago, and we're sort of different now. Can you take us through that journey a bit? Yeah, so I guess about 10 years ago, it was maybe on the radar of the U.S. Navy and some other proactive uh, type industries, but a lot of people just didn't believe it happened. Uh, so, so kind of what you do with your podcast and your website, you actually show that this is a lot more frequent than people would like to believe. But what I found is when in the early 2000s, we were educating people on this, people would say, first of all, I've never seen one. And then you get them talking and say, oh, yeah, we had one. And it turns out they had several near misses. They just hadn't thought of it. And then you show the triangle of the ratio of fatalities to near misses and how deadly these burn injuries really are kind of opens some eyes. Uh, the other thing is there's kind of a, a machismo with working on electricity. 
And people would say, oh, yeah, we know it's dangerous. Our guys are careful. Kind of I had a similar experience with with the dust industry. We had a client that said uh, he didn't need a dust hazard analysis because, yeah, we know that weed dust is explosive. What do I need a hazard analysis for? So, <laughs> there's still kind of this mindset that, yeah, we know what we're doing. It doesn't happen that often. And then once you kind of overcome that hurdle, the next hurdle is, well, do I really need to do this? You know, my state doesn't follow OSHA or OSHA doesn't really do this other than the general duty clause. And so once once we kind of got over those hurdles, it was probably about a five, 10 year uh, window of education. And that's where I kind of see the, uh, you know, the NFPA 652 is about 10 years behind where our flash is today. Yeah, certainly. And some of those those comments resonate quite a bit. I just did a presentation with powder and bulk solids last week at the time of this recording. So probably maybe a month by the time this comes out. Um, and those those lines actually shared a, a flower dust explosion that happened in, I want to say 1780s or something like that in Italy. And the, the investigator went to the baker. It was a, it was a bakery. I said, have you ever seen this? And the baker said, no, I've never seen it. And then he said, are you, are you kind of sure? And he said, well, you know, we have seen these kind of smaller flash fires and fires involving flour and, and we've seen this sort of thing maybe happen a little before, but nobody's ever been hurt. Right. And then it's like, okay, well, search your memory some more. Has, okay, well, you know, one, one person burned their hand or it's like beginning with, well, that doesn't happen. And then I think the, the words you use after that is, okay, it, it does happen. Do I need to, you know, do I actually really need to worry about it? And then trying to convince them up that ladder of, of putting in a safer, safer system at the end of the day. Right. Very, very interesting overlap with that. I just mentioned is I, I, when you were saying that, it sounded exactly like how I gave him that presentation. Yeah, very similar. A lot, a lot of similar progression for sure. So what are some of the elements that you think made an arc flash, made it successful to where it is today? And I'm sure these things are still happening. So your measure of success depends on, on what you actually look at, but it seems like it's getting better. What are some of the things that have really helped that? Yeah, I think because in the past, these studies were done by engineering firms. And uh, most of the time that you would do an arc flash study, you came in through the EHS department. And so you also had the political element that you had to go through. I think we've gotten, over the last 10, 50 years, those departments have worked better together. Uh, the other thing I've seen work better is you'll have some kind of corporate safety that says, hey, we've got 10 facilities, thou shalt do this. And oh, by the way, every local facility shall pay for it. So the local plant manager is not real happy when you show up to do this study, which his engineering department doesn't believe in, and it's going to come unexpectedly out of his budget. So I think now most companies have have realized that, look, this is a worthwhile investment. Maybe we need to look at uh, funding it differently, but we need all three teams to be working cohesively here, uh, plant management, EH&S, and engineering. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great tip. And uh, are there any other specific things that you think have have helped in, in arc flash safety that we, we could bring along to combustible dust. That's a good one of really the EHS, EHS working with the plant managers, working with the engineering team, make sure everyone's on the same page. I might add to that, bringing in somebody that has combustible dust knowledge if, if nobody in any of those teams are familiar with that sort of safety approach. Um, is there anything else that could be come in from arc flash safety? Yeah, I think just you design with that in mind. I think, uh, you know, when I started my career some 20 years ago, uh, if I needed a, a large transformer, that's what you put in. Now, the, knowing what we know about arc flash, you say, well, maybe if I had three smaller transformers, I reduce the incident energy. It, it'll make it easier for the arc flash uh, you know, study going forward. So kind of that design with the safety in mind before you build the plant also uh, has certainly helped. 
So we're going to come all the way back around to the, to the, uh, to this gap analysis. So you mentioned PPP engineering changes and work procedures. One of the principles of inherent safety, there's, there's a couple, there's substitution elimination, which I mentioned getting rid of the hazard. Um, there's also minimization substitution. So we, it, that exact case of having a large transformer, could we have three smaller ones that each one individually being safer is actually, you can see as maybe substitution or maybe minimization, but that, that is a core tenant of, of inherent safety. So it's, it's interesting to bring that all the way back through and say, Hey, this is something that we could apply. That's, that's kind of interesting. I've seen, I've talked to other industries, say wood processing, um, where they're now talking, can we get rid of our storage silo? They have a, if they, the reason they have a storage silo is because they have an inconsistent input of raw material and, and maybe not an effective part of their plant where they're creating the product that can cause the buildup, which is why they need a silo. But if they improve the delivery and improve their systems and just have complete throughput, maybe they don't need to build a silo to store the wood dust, which would be a case of then eliminating the hazard altogether. So these things kind of, they, they go hand in hand trying to find ways to reduce inherently reduce the, the hazards involved. So thanks for bringing that up. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's amazing the similarities. So then I think we have two specific things that could help in combustible dust. One is better getting EHS, getting the plant managers, getting the engineers on the same page, bring in somebody that has combustible dust experience. Then we have this, this concept of maybe trying to apply inherent safety principles. Can we do something that's safer that still gets the same result? Then the other specific things you've seen from, from the history of our class that might be able to, to bring forward? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the other things we've seen is the standard has evolved. What we knew in the year 2000, what we knew in 2010, what we know today uh, has certainly changed. So I, I don't think that, uh, you know, the science is ever uh, completely settled uh, in this industry. We can always do it better. We learn more and more every day. But just, you know, the awareness that uh, you need to design with this in mind, it just makes it so much easier if you design on the front end uh, with the safety in mind, then trying to retrofit it afterwards, trying to shoehorn it in, uh, is always going to be more difficult. Probably cheaper as well than trying to add it on. Exactly. Yep. That's a really great coverage of that kind of history. And maybe I'll, I'll do a quick summary. So we talked about um, what is arc flash. We talked about how in the 1990s, the focus shift from maybe contact injuries to burn injuries, how the U.S. Navy was, was one of the people that spearheaded it. We talked about gap analysis, PPE work procedures, engineering changes, um, and inherent safety a bit there. We talked about just the, what is arc flash safety? We talked about arc flash studies, maybe shutting things down to maintenance mode before having your workers go in. We talked about the history. We talked about some of the things we can bring forward in combustible dust, make sure EHS is on the same page, plant managers and engineers, um, inherent safety. So those are all really great concepts and really good to hear that we can apply those, bring those information in from other industries. I guess I have two questions for you before we close out. One would be, do you have any, any um, recommendations on groups or even reference material that people could go to to learn about ArcFlash safety and, and maybe some of the other things? Like I'm thinking myself, we may try to comb some of the literature and see if there is other things we can pull for combustible dust safety. Is there any one group or somebody that, or number of groups that are doing that kind of collection? Oh, sure. Yeah, there, there's a number of groups out there. Um, I, I know you mentioned uh, the video we talked about before. If, if you ever wonder what a burn victim goes through, the Eddie Adams arc flash, if you, if you would just uh, search that on the internet, th that tells you exactly what a burn victim goes through. Uh, and as we were talking earlier, Chris, that, that still moves and touches me today, having worked at that plant a number of times. 
Uh, but as far as resources go, so the IEEE puts out the, the calculation method on ArcFlash. One of my favorite sites, Jim Phillips, uh, who's on the IEEE committee, has a, a website called Grainfiller. And he, uh, you know, is, is an independent tester. He's not selling engineering. He's not selling products. I think he has one of the finest resources uh, in all of electrical safety. So Jim Phillips, uh, brainfiller.com uh, would, would be my first recommendation for people to get a little more familiar with ArcFlash. Well, that's perfect. We'll include links to the, the IEEE standards for ArcFlash and material there. And also this, it was it brainfiller, F-I-L-L-E-R.com? Yep, brainfiller, all one word, dot com. And it, his name was Jim? Jim Phillips, yes. He, he does uh, all the kind of fun stuff where they uh, blow up electrical equipment in the lab and then they take the high-speed cameras and model it. And that's how they make the, uh, uh, the equations to calculate uh, ArcFlash incident energy. Oh, I like that. And it's... I don't want to, I want to be careful with saying about experimentation if, that it might be easier in arc flash because I'm not that experienced with it, but combustible dust, it's a little bit harder in the lab because you got to get the dust in the air <laughs> and, and keep it in the air while you're trying to do the test. Where arc flash, I could see maybe, you know, you set everything up on one side of the circuit and the other, and then you close the line and it might be a little bit easier to measure. I'm not sure. Well, it might be one of those things where it's just a little more mature. I think uh, 20 years ago, we, we look at the testing we did and said, boy, that was silly. That's not how a, an electrical box is really arranged. You should move this closer or set, set the worker this way. Or So I, I think it's an evolving test lab situation. But um, I think, if yeah, eventually, I think that they'll get that testing down. And, yeah, the data you reap from it is, is just priceless. Oh, that's perfect. Is there any other kind of one thing you want to leave the, the listeners with from our, from our discussion today? Oh, gosh, just, uh, yeah, if, if you've ever seen a victim of a burn injury, or, or what they go through, it, it, it's almost better to have a fatality uh, than to have the injury. And you wouldn't wish this on, on your worst enemy. So I, I would say if you're on the fence about do we need to do this or not, should we pay the money or not, just think about what happens to one burn victim. Um, if you could have prevented that, you know, that's what I'd like to, to leave people with. No, we appreciate that. And I'll, I'll include a second video um, that I came across a, a couple of years ago. I think it's called The Danger of dust how smart particles small particles can cause big problems now it's actually a rubber dust flash fire and the employee wasn't aware that rubber dust was was combustible or explosible and the the work the company wasn't aware as, as well but he he survived and um he talks about the the process he went through he had seven burns over 75 percent of his body and was in the hospital for several months after in a coma for for some period all from from a rubber dust flash fire that can only make you agree with your comments more that it's a very scary, dangerous thing that that's really, really quite sobering to, to see. So um, we'll, we'll include that in the, the show notes as well. And yeah, beyond that, I, I do want to end on a, on a, on a good note because it is, it is really nice to have you and your experience here to talk about our flash safety and, and what some of the processes that, that have gone on over time there, how they can be applied to combustible dust safety and, it actually gives gives some hope on on where we're headed and where we're moving um, in in these industries handling combustible dust. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, I learned so much just talking to my colleagues who are in the combustible dust safety. It, it just brings a light bulb every time. Well, gee, we we've seen this before in ArcFlash. We should really be sharing these uh, you know types of practices and, and uh, work practices. That's that's exactly what this podcast is meant for. So I appreciate that, and hopefully we can get you back on to to talk about a. Uh, you know, arc flash again in the future. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. I hope you have a great day. All right, Chris. Thank you. Take care. 
In that interview, we talked about the history of arc flash safety with Dan Laird. We talked about the different similarities with combustible dust and where we're at today and, and where we're heading in that area. If you want to connect with and reach out to Dan, you can do so through his email, which will be at the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 25. We'll also have links to all the other resources we mentioned in the interview at the location, the IEEE standards, brainfiller.com by Jim Phillips, and some of the other things that we discussed will be located there. As always, if you want to leave any comments or questions, you can do so at the show notes. Um, and if you have any questions for the podcast overall, you can leave them at dustsafetyscience.com slash askask. As always, I appreciate you listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I hope you have a great week ahead and stay safe in the industries you're working in. And I appreciate the work you're doing in these industries, making them safer every day. 